Following up on the four months of violence in the Gaza Strip, the world has seen an increased disaster for Palestinians in Gaza and around the world. Famine, illness, and increased mortality rates have persisted since the initial ground invasion in October, with concerns that the situation will continue to worsen. There have been multiple developments, including accusations brought to international courts, progress towards hostage negotiations, increased media coverage from Palestinians in Gaza, and protests around the world. That brings us to the questions of how we got here and where we may be heading next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Trisha Ballion. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation, our analyst today is Amelia Vincichinsky. Hi, Amelia. Hello. And focusing on the international aspect today is Kasha Kastrava. Hey, Kasha. Hi. So before we dive too deep into some of the updates on this, I want to turn to you, Amelia, first and ask if you can provide us with just an updated timeline of events since we last spoke about the conflict in October so we can contextualize our conversation. Yeah, so I think it's really important to start at the beginning. So the initial attack happened on October 7th when Hamas attacked Israel, which was shortly followed by Israel declaring war the next day, so October 8th. Throughout that whole month, there was a lot of fighting, but on October 28th, Israel began an invasion of the Gaza Strip, which launched a large-scale ground assault onto Gaza. Throughout the whole war, there were many airstrikes, and it's a lot to name one by one, Mm -hmm. but there was a lot of strikes from both Israel onto Gaza and from Hamas onto Israel. It's important to note that in late November, the Israeli government voted to approve a deal with Hamas to exchange 150 Palestinian prisoners for 50 hostages. It approved an agreement for a four-day ceasefire in Gaza, which was very important in the context of the war. And on November 24th, that's when the hostage deal really began. 24 hostages, including 13 Israelis, 10 Thais, and one Filipino were released by Hamas, and Israel also released 39 prisoners. Throughout that whole following week, more and more hostages were released and many families were reunited. And after that hostage deal, a large amount of fighting still went on. There were many airstrikes from Israel onto Gaza, and the casualties of the war have severely increased since October 7th. Right now, it's presumed that at least 27,585 people have been killed and 66,978 wounded in Israeli attacks on Gaza. And the death toll in Israel from the October 7th Hamas attack stands at 1,139. Mm-hmm. Thank you for providing us some of those statistics just so we can kind of see proportionally what both um, sides' mortality is looking like. Um, and we'll get back to the conversation regarding the hostage negotiations and that crisis and talking a little bit more about that in a little bit. But right now, I want to turn to you, Kasha, to provide us a little bit more background internationally as well with what the involvement has been from the U.S. regarding this conflict. Yeah, so the Biden administration has been a very staunch supporter of Israel and their campaigns on Gaza. And there's been a lot of different stuff in the U.S. backlash against that. There was a dismissed case from a federal judge brought to courts by Palestinian Americans who wanted the White House to reconsider their participation and stance on the crisis. And the judge who was ruling on it encouraged Biden to examine the results of their unflagging support, but not much could actually be done as the federal courts do not have jurisdiction over the White House's foreign policy decisions. There also have been sanctions on Israeli settlers 
as Biden was trying to gain support from Arab Americans who... So within those sanctions, it was on Israeli settlers who were accused of violent acts in Gaza. But these were, again, it only constituted what the U.S. considered violent acts, so it hasn't done much. There's also been pro-Palestinian protests disrupting Biden campaigns. As we know, the U.S. election is at the end of this year, and Biden has been on the campaign trail. During his campaign stops, there have been many protesters screaming and interrupting his speeches most recently at a stop people scream genocide joe how many kids have you killed in gaza how many women have you killed in gaza and people expect that this will continue throughout the year or as long as he's campaigning as long as this war continues Mm -hmm. and we'll revisit some of that involvement from the u.s as we talk further regarding this entire conflict and just to kind of round out some of our background information have there been developments in other states um, within that region yeah so in lebanon hezbollah which is a militia has been fighting with israel they have been at kind of a war with israel since 2006 where hezbollah captured and killed two two israeli troops in a cross-border dispute um they've also been supporting and funding hamas so that's kind of another actor that we should watch out for mm-hmm. gotcha and sticking with you kasha i want to transition into talking about one of the biggest things we've been hearing about in the news lately um, which is the involvement of these international courts so could you just give us a brief background on what exactly are the international court of justice and the international criminal court and their role in international law So the International Court of Justice, also known as the ICJ, is the only international court that advocates general disputes between nations. It's one of the six organs of the United Nations. And the International Criminal Court, which is also known as the ICC, is an intergovernmental organization and international tribunal that rules on and prosecutes individuals for international crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes of aggression. And both the ICC and the ICJ's rules are considered binding to states, but since there's no like international police force, technically they can't be thoroughly enforced directly, so nations will enforce rulings for nations or individuals that aren't complying through things like tariffs. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so could you tell us a little bit more about the decision that came out of the ICJ, what exactly that means and how to interpret it? Yeah, so South Africa brought a case forward to the ICJ about Israel conducting genocide in the Gaza Strip. And all 17 of the ICJ judges that ruled on the case agreed that Israel should do everything in their power to prevent genocide and ensure economic and humanitarian aid to Palestinian people. But this was the only outcome. It wasn't, there wasn't a mandated ceasefire as many hoped and many expected. Gotcha. And so what has been the involvement from the International Criminal Court and what does that mean in this context? So they have been doing a few ongoing investigations in Gaza. Most recently on January 18th, Mexico and Chile brought up an investigation despite 
these like i said the icc rules on people and so you're looking at people maybe like Netanyahu or idf officials who these cases could be against but despite ongoing investigation multiple nations urging for the ceasefire many expect that nothing concrete will result because it's kind of it's harder to roll on individuals than it is on and their direct involvement than it is to states. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so I want to turn and address this question to you, Amelia, actually, and ask if you could shed a little bit of light on the relations between Israel, Palestine, and the courts. Like, are they members of the courts? How is that going to be reflected back on them? So Israel is a part of the ICJ, but not the ICC. And the ICJ has stated that they have territorial jurisdiction on Gaza and the West Bank. But it's really more of a statement than an action because there's no international police force that can directly jurisdict in Gaza. So it's just saying that they're there for support, but mm-hmm. they can't really act on it. Yeah. So more of like a, like you said, like a statement as opposed to like a call to action and yeah. just kind of showing yeah. their attitude towards what's happening, not that they can necessarily act upon that yeah. and enforce it. So back to you, Kasha, I wanted to ask about some of the economic instability that we've seen in this region as a result of the conflict and the war itself. So obviously it has impacted the economic stability of not only Israel but Palestine as well. How has the region on a whole been faring though? Yeah, so in a United Nations Development Program report, the report regarded Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon, which border Israel and Palestine, and it estimated that in just three months, the war has cost the combined GDP of those three nations $10.3 billion, which is 2.3% of their GDPs. It also estimated that 230,000 people in these nations are expected to fall below the poverty line. And it warned that human development in those nations could regress by two to three years based on refugee flow, soaring public debt, and declining trade and tourism. The IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund, echoed these sentiments in a report they published in December. And so before the conflict in October broke out, what were the economic conditions in the area? So prior to the October 7th attack, economic activity in the Middle East and North Africa was already dropping. In 2022, economic activity growth was at 5.6% and it dropped to 2% in the region in 2023. The World Bank has also stated that Lebanon is in one of the worst economic financial crises in a century and a half and the war has only exasperated it. And so, like you mentioned, for Lebanon being a big victim of this economic instability, what ways specifically have these nations been struggling? So, a big thing has been tourism in those three nations. Airline bookings have been down in Jordan by 18%, in Lebanon by 25%. Egypt has been struggling specifically with government spending. Um, In the wake of rising costs for essential imports, like a big thing is like grain because of the war in Ukraine Mm -hmm. and drops in tourism and also drops in foreign investment. Again, that can be traced back to the war in Ukraine because a lot of countries have been investing funds there rather than evenly dispersing them across other nations. And the Egyptian government has also struggled with spending on weapons and other projects that have 
created a sort of debt crisis and this is all extrapolated by rising interests and then again the war and bringing in refugees and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Now have there been any other extenuating circumstances that we've seen coming out of this that maybe involve more nations internationally? Yeah, so another thing is the trade has been down in the Suez Canal. Egypt has struggled in that week, especially because they primarily control it. Lack of traffic in the Suez Canal is impacting all of these nations, not just in the Middle East, but anywhere that has jurisdiction over shipping and stuff like that. The head of the Suez Canal Authority in January said that the revenues were down by 40% just in the month of January compared to all of 2023 and is down 30% just from December. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're not only seeing a destruction of infrastructure and economy within Palestine, specifically Gaza, but throughout the area as well resulting from this. So now I want to turn to you, Amelia, and ask more about the hostage deal that you were mentioning earlier. It's one of the main events in this timeline we're looking at. Can you give us some more background on what this hostage crisis is for both countries? Well, to really understand the hostage crisis, it has to be understood that there's been a long history since the 1990s of both Israel and Hamas engaging in seizing hostages and negotiating further. They really have always been doing this since the start of the whole conflict, which goes back many years. But recently, as of October 2023, Israel has held around 5,000 Palestinian prisoners, and they've been using that for bargaining in order to get back Israeli hostages. The release of Palestinian prisoners has been a major point Hamas has been working towards, not only in this specific war, but going back further into previous years. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a pinnacle of the agenda that we've seen throughout the interaction between Hamas and Israel. Mm -hmm. So how does imprisonment and taking of hostages fit into international law? Well, it's actually prohibited under international law and it's regarded as a war crime. Israel has been called out by the UN for convicting Palestinians as terrorists without trial and others without charges. They've essentially been holding Palestinian prisoners without giving them the right to a fair trial which in comparison, Israeli citizens are tried in civil courts, which highlights the two-tier justice system that's discriminating against Palestinians because they're not having the right to a fair trial. Uh, An overwhelming majority of Palestinian prisoners were arrested under administrative detention, and they were jailed for six months, but it just keeps getting extended because they're not following the laws as they're meant to be followed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're definitely seeing this extended hold without proper um, communication as to why without proper charges and you know subsequent trials Mm -hmm. which is not an issue we've seen i'm sure on hamas's side as far as how that's working with hostages versus imprisonment there's definitely a lot of gray areas to what we're going to call imprisonment what we're going to call hostage seizing so it's definitely it's it's very different on both sides Mm -hmm. and so what are some details of this possible negotiations we've heard about in the news between israel and hamas regarding the respective hostages so the proposal in november was really just it was trying to get everyone back to their families and situated it there was it was a broad framework there was a lot to go into it it included an initial six-week cessation of fighting where they wanted to just release all civilian hostages held by hamas in gaza and in return israel would release three palestinian prisoners for every one hostage it was negotiated among the united states qatar and egypt with participation of israel and hamas they were mm-hmm all working together to figure out how to make this the most 
fair and good possible situation that mm-hmm. everyone could be safely returned. Yeah. And I know some of the details regarding the hostage negotiations we've heard about more recently has come with this promise of like a two month ceasefire. Do we see that happening in your opinion based off of what we know and like the research? Do we see a two month ceasefire happening or is that just not in the books, do you think? I think we can see a ceasefire because looking back historically, Israel has never suffered this much of a loss or casualties in this sense. I mean, comparing the numbers between Palestinians and Israelis, the number is drastically different, but for Israeli casualties, the number is still significantly higher than it normally is. Mm -hmm. So I do think that a ceasefire could be seen in the future because they're really gonna try to make it the most, so they could benefit the Mm -hmm. most from it. Gotcha. Well, it's definitely something we need to be keeping an eye on. I'm sure the news will be following that very, very closely. And I wanted to turn back to you, Kasha, for a few minutes and talk more about this refugee crisis we've been seeing as extreme displacement of Palestinians from Gaza has been taking place. How have nations responded to this? Yeah, so we already talked about how there's been a refugee crisis and how it's impacted the bordering nations of Israel and Palestine, but it's also been reaching far and wide. There's been a few nations that have kind of implemented different laws about it, or things like in Canada, they are implementing a temporary residence pathway. Now, what this means is on January 9th, 2024, Mark Miller, who is the Canadian Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship, announced the opening of a temporary residence pathway that extends to family members of already Canadian citizens or permanent residents, and he's extending it to family members who live in Gaza. Once in Canada, eligible people can apply for a fee-exempt study permit or open work permit under measures already announced. Now, despite this, there has been some controversy because on the application, there have been questions that people have considered kind of invasive and might be insensitive to those who are struggling with displacement, PTSD, etc. However, the minister has continued to defend the guidelines. Gotcha. So aside from Canada, what else have we seen in maybe some other countries around the world? So in Germany, they have been denying visa extensions to Palestinians due to security concerns. A majority of Germans, including most of the government, have been supportive of Israel following October 7th. So it's not much of a surprise that they have been denying these extensions. Again, they're citing security concerns for this. And then the United States, as I mentioned previously, there's been a ban against violent Israeli settlers. In December, the United States imposed a visa ban to quote unquote, violent Israeli settlers and some West Bank Palestinians. Now, as we know, the primary concern since October 7th has been Gaza and not the West Bank, which is another territory or region of Palestine. So there hasn't been anything specific said about those from Gaza, but this can still be some hope as there has been fighting in the West Bank. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made a statement about this saying, targeting individuals believed to have been involved in undermining peace, security, or stability in the West Bank, including 
through committing acts of violence or taking other actions that only restrict civilians' access to essential services and basic necessities. So, again, they're primarily talking about the West Bank, but it can still be seen as some precedent towards what may come in the future. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely seeing an interesting response to this refugee crisis where there hasn't been a whole lot of aid in particular or any like specific aid to the, the refugees coming out of it, which hopefully we can see develop soon as maybe some countries will take in more more of these refugees. Now, just to kind of wrap up on um, this discussion here, I want to turn to you, Amelia, and ask you some final thoughts, specifically regarding what the significance has been of the presence of the press in Gaza and the documentation of what's been occurring. This is one of the, I think, the first time we've seen such mass destruction be documented and visualized by the people on the ground. So it's definitely something new that we've seen in the news and, you know, on the international stage. So what do you think the significance of that has been? Yeah, I think the presence of the press, specifically now with the use of social media, has really shown people overseas what's going on. I know that many people now are becoming educated through the use of social media because the modern age is more about that rather than reading off a newspaper or a news site. Many people have been calling out how the press is risking their lives to report these stories, specifically on social medias like TikTok. Mm -hmm. People have been changing their profiles to show support for Palestine, but also under many popular influencers' posts, they would comment, oh, this person from the press would have loved this because they're struggling in Gaza to show Mm -hmm. us what's going on and people aren't bringing attention to it with bigger platforms. I think really that's what the core issue is here that the press is risking their lives in Gaza because the Israeli strikes are not going to stop for someone working for the press. And it's happened before. Someone from the press has been killed by the IDF. And it's it shows how severe the situation is. The press is not as safe as we think they are. Mm-hmm. And if you follow their Instagram stories or their TikToks and everything, it shows a deeper meaning to what's mm-hmm. going on there because they're seeing it firsthand and showing it to us so that we can understand what's happening in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's definitely been, I think, a disproportionate amount of what we've seen coming out of Gaza versus what we've seen from maybe like Western influencers and, you know, people of note and celebrities. Yeah, especially were, people who have a lot of mm-hmm. internet fame. Yeah, and like big platforms that aren't yeah. being, you know, used maybe in the most correct way mm-hmm. um, towards being, I guess, pinned on people who are actively going through this crisis to report yeah. it themselves and it's not really being covered by by the western yeah. news sites. Turning to you Kasha, I just wanted to ask, what do you how do you foresee the United States's involvement developing within this conflict? Yeah, so regarding the United States and specifically the Biden administration as it stands at least until November, I don't see much change that is going to happen the united states in the 70 plus years that israel has been a state has been a very staunch supporter of it and played a very big role in the establishment so i don't really see the biden administration's stance on it changing however kind of piggybacking off what amelia said um there have been very wide protests especially because with social media more than ever before we can truly see what is going on in gaza there have been huge mass protests as we talked about earlier on the campaign trail but also just in general especially in big cities like los angeles new york washington dc that have 
shown the public's um, dissatisfaction with the United States involvement. And I can see there being different representatives who may change their stance or maybe voted in in November who maybe support Palestine and stuff. But on a huge, like, overarching federal government level, I honestly can't see it changing just due to how intertwined the United States has been with the history of Israel. And that goes for a lot of other Western nations as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see how all this will develop with the upcoming election and, you know, following that with voter turnout and all that stuff that has to do with new politicians coming into power and what agendas that might bring. Well, as much as I'd love to continue diving into this topic, that's all the time we're going to have left. This has been a really great and pressing discussion. So, Amelia, Kasha, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our newest briefer, Megan Pitt. Hey, Megan. Hi. So what headlines do you have for us this week? We have forest fires in Chile kill 46, three wounded after an attack in a Parisian train station, the Senegalese president calls off the election, and a pigeon was released after being held in suspicion of foreign espionage. So lots of interesting stories to cover today. Let's start with the news from Chile. On Saturday, February 3rd, Chile's president, Gabriel Boric, announced that forest fires in the nation killed at least 46. He warned that the death toll could rise as four fires continue to burn. 1,100 homes were destroyed. These devastating fires can be attributed to the El Nino weather patterns, which brought heat and droughts to Chile this year. Our hearts go out to everyone impacted by the natural disaster. And the incident in Paris? On Saturday, a man set fire to his backpack and then proceeded to attack nearby citizens with a knife and a hammer in the Gare de Lyon, a Parisian train station. Three were injured, with one suffering significant stomach wounds. The suspect was identified as a 32-year-old Malian national residing in Italy. He was tackled by security officers and bystanders in the station and is now in police custody. That's definitely something we'll all be watching as it develops. Tell me more about the election in Senegal. Senegal was expected to hold an election for incumbent President Macky Sall's replacement in just three weeks. However, on Saturday afternoon, Sall canceled the election, stating that tensions between the legislative and judicial branches of government must be resolved first. His opponents are accusing him of treason, arguing that he's leading a coup d'etat. Others claim that his actions could damage the integrity of the Senegalese election process. So definitely an important decision we'll be keeping an eye on. And what about that pigeon? A black pigeon was found wandering along an Indian port where international vessels dock. Along its wings were cursive messages in ancient Chinese, and a microchip was attached to the bird. Ravinder Patil, a Mumbai police sub-inspector assigned to the case, decided to lock up the pigeon in a nearby veterinary hospital where it stayed for eight months. Long ago, the bird was cleared of any foreign espionage claims, but in the veterinary hospital it remained until a newspaper article with upset input from animal rights groups was published. Thank you so much for coming on, Megan. So that's all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Bobby Kyle, associate producers Kasia Kostraba and Juliana Mori, technical producers Ashley Skadani and Emilia Vincitinsky, and of course your host, Trisha Ballion. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thanks, y'all.